With Hashem's assistance, we are learning Gittin Daf Peches, page 88. We begin, follow the lines from the top. Chasmu Eidim Beresha Daf We said on the Mishnah that the witnesses sign on the top or on the side, so it's not going to be good. Eini, the Gemara says, is that true? V'harav Chasim and Hatzad. We know that Rav used to sign, used to sign his name on the side of the document, and it was fine. So the Gemara answers, no. Why is it okay over there? Why is it okay? Because the top of the signature, the gag of his signature, of Rav's signature, was facing towards the document. As opposed to if the, if the top of the signature is facing away from the document, so we have to assume that it was actually part of a different document, explains Rashi, and therefore it's going to be possible. So the Gemara says, wait. This that we said in the Mishnah. Let's say you have two documents where the tops of them are facing each other, meaning one is upside down and the other one is right side up, and their tops are touching. Yeah, and then what happened? And you sign the witnesses in the middle. They're both no good. Why should that be? If we just said that if, if the top of the signature is facing towards the, uh, the, one of the documents, so then it should be over here as well. One of the, the one that the top is facing towards that document should be good. So why don't we see which one is facing towards the top of the signatures of the witnesses, and then it should be, that one should be kosher. So my answer is, The answer is that over there, it's the top of them is facing towards neither one of them, but rather it's actually written across in such a way that that uh, the top is not facing either of them. If that's the case, we ask the Gemara, in the end of the mission where we said that if you have the top of one of them facing the bottom of the other one, meaning you have one on top of the other, so so the witnesses are signed in the middle. The one that the witnesses are signed below it, so it's kosher. Why? If it was written across and not written uh, straight underneath the document, but rather it's written uh, perpendicular to the document. So if that's the case, so then you're going to run into problems. How could any of them be kosher? So So it's not going to be read with this one at all. And it's not going to be read with this one either. So it's clear that when we said that Rav, it was okay for him to do it, it's not because the top of his signature was facing towards the document, but rather it's because he wasn't signing on a regular document, explains the Gemara. He was signing on a, a document calling someone to court. And on such a document, so it's not necessary to have the signature written correctly. Now the Gemara continues. Get of Ivris. It was written in Hebrew, etc. So we said in the Mishnah that you have writing of the scribe, along with one signature, that was going to be fine. Amir Yermia, Yermia says, Chasam Sefer Shaninu. When we're talking about in the Mishnah, we have the writing of the scribe, it means not just that the scribe wrote it, but he also signed, there's one signature of the scribe. Amir Chizda, so Chizda says, Ha money, Rabbi Yossi, why is it that it's kosher? Because it's like Rabbi Yossi, because Rabbi Yossi holds that that if you have a job to do, a task, so that's not, not something that you can give over to someone else. Only if you have an object that you're supposed to get, bring, so that's something that you can give over to someone else. So over here as well, since you can't give over words to someone else, so that means that the the sofer, the one who's writing at the scribe, had to be told directly by the husband that he should sign it. And we assume that the sofer, he knows that law because we're talking about, as we mentioned earlier, a sofer mufok, somebody who knows the laws very well. And therefore, we don't have to assume that, uh, that there's any problems here. We assume that indeed, there was no other one sent to tell him to do it. And therefore, he, was, he heard it directly, we can assume that it's kosher. Hahi ksuvas chasan. And there was a certain document that was written for a ksuva, for a, for a groom. The Asi Lekamei the Rabbi Avoh came in front of Rabbi Avoh, the Ahavu Yadile, the Taisa, 
So what they had there, they, they had two witnesses signed on it, but they recognized one of the witnesses, they only knew that signature of one of the witnesses, and in regards to the actual document itself, they knew, they recognized the handwriting of the scribe. So the question was, is this going to be kosher? Because if you read the Mishnah simply, so it says, all you need is one witness besides for the actual writing of the scribe. But according to Rabbi Yermia, that's not going to be good enough. So let's see what the Gemara says. So, so you had one witness that they recognized the signature. So they held that it should be kosher based on our Mishnah. So he responded and said, Rabbi Yirmiya said that no, the only way that it's good is if, this, is if the scribe actually signed it. So over here where the scribe did not sign it, so even though we recognize his handwriting that he wrote the document, nevertheless we need to verify both of the witnesses before we can say that this document is kosher. The Gemara continues. If he wrote his family name or her family name, it's kosher. We need to understand over here that I think the understanding is that in those days they didn't have normal, normal family names like we do today, but rather with the way it was, was that there was a patriarch of the family that said his name was Moshe or Moses, and they would call it, they would call that family Moseson or Jacobson. That would come from that that kind of idea, but but they didn't per se have these family names that would stick to them. We're going to see how long it would stick, how long it would be okay. The Tanakhama here in the Brisa says that you have ten generations that you could still use that family name based on that person who was the patriarch of the family. says no, you only have three generations to do it. From then and on, so people don't remember the patriarch of the family anymore. Therefore, you wouldn't use that name anymore. Like whom does it go? Which of these Tanaim does it go like this that Rabbi Hanina said? That you can still write it for three generations. Clearly, this is exactly like Rabbi Shimon Lazar said. Um, Rav Huna. Rav Huna says, Micra. Where do we see this from the verse? When you shall have children and grandchildren, then you will be old. So there we see that when is it considered that a person is old and he's no longer remembered perhaps? So that's only up to three generations. Um, Rav Yeshua ben Levi, Rav Levi says like this, The land of Israel wasn't destroyed until you had seven courts, idolatrous courts. The Elohim, and these are they. And Rashi explains that each of these kings, so the course that we're talking about are they, the person, the king himself, and their children and grandchildren. So here again, we're going to see that you have a three-generation type of deal. So each one of them, they, their grandchildren, and their children, count as one court. Yeravim ben Avad is the first king. Ubasha ben Achia, Viacha ben Imri, Vigeyo ben Nimshi, Upekach ben Ramalia, Menachem ben Gadi, Voysheh ben Allah. Shanamar, as the verse says, so we see that there are seven here, there are seven different kings with their generations, each one of them is considered a separate court. As the verse says, Umlala Yoledis Hashiva, the pathetic one who's given birth to seven, so the soul has gone out of him, his son has sat, while it was still day, they are embarrassed and humiliated. So here we see that there's this number seven. It represents the fact that after seven of these courts, so there was an exile that occurred, the ten tribes were exiled. Amr of Ami, Ami says, Me'ekra, where do we see this idea? We see, the way I understand this is, according to Rashi, that again we see that you have this concept of the generation, the primary generation, the children and the grandchildren, that constitutes one unit.
That in his times, that's when the ten tribes were exiled. So what's the understanding? If he was doing better, why is it that during his times, those ten tribes were exiled? So he responded and said, There were these guards that had been placed originally by Yeruvim, the first king, uh, by the path, not allowing Yisrael in order that the northern kingdom of the people of Israel should not be able to go down to Yerushalayim in order to go to the, to the temple. He wanted to do that to prevent them from reconnecting back with the southern kingdom. After many generations, so Hosea came, and he took away those guards. So that seems like it's a good thing, right? But no, it's going to be problematic. It looks bad for the Jews because all of these people from the northern kingdom, they still didn't go down despite the fact that they were no longer guards. All of those years, or these years, they haven't gone, that these people of the northern kingdom haven't gone down to the southern kingdom to go to the base of Migdash, because of that, which they didn't do. So that's why they're going to go into exile. So even though he was a good king, he was a better person. Nevertheless, the people in his generation displayed the fact that they were not worthy of remaining in Israel and they were sent off into captivity. Amr of Chizda, Amr Ma'ukva, Rav Chizda says the name of Ma'ukva, Amr of Amr of Chizda, Amr of Yermia, and those who say it's Rav Chizda in the name of Yermia, Dorash Meremar. Meremar said the following, Joshua, My Dechsev, what does it mean in the verse when it says, Vayishkod Hashem al like God brought quickly the evil, Vayviyah Aleinu, He brought it upon us, Kitzadik Hashem, for God is righteous, Halakeinu, our God. Just because he's righteous, that's why he brings it faster. He brought it upon us. The answer is yes, God did a charity with the people of Israel. That when the final Golos, uh, the final exiles of the first, first base of Megdash, the first temple happened of Tzidkiyahu and all of the people, the people who had been exiled 11 years earlier, which was Yechania and all of the Tamidi Chachamim, all of the uh, scholars, the Torah scholars, they were still around and therefore the people of Israel would be saved and they would still be able to remain as a nation. The Chsiv Be'i Begolos as the verse says in regards to the exile of Yechania, HaCheresh V'Hamazger Elef Along with him came the Cherish and the Mazir, a thousand of them. What's this talking about? Cherish, why were they called Cherish, which sounds like a, a person who's mute? When these scholars would speak, so no one would have any response, they would all become mute. Masker, why would they refer to as Masker? Once they would close the law, once they would say what the halacha was, no one else would reopen it because their word was final. How many of them? Aleph, a thousand. Ula Amar, Ula gives another explanation why it is, why was it a charity, why was it a righteousness that God made us go out early? The verse says, Vinoishantem, Rashi explains that the, if you take the gematria, the numerical value of the world word, Vinoishantem, it's 852. So that meant that 852 years that the Jewish people were supposed to be in the land of Israel and then they would go into Gaulus, they would be exiled. But the verse actually says that after 850 years, Avoid Tovedun, they will be destroyed, heaven forbid. So if they would have been in Israel for that full time, the 852 years, so they would have gotten to a level where they would have to be destroyed by Hashem taking us out two years earlier so he made it such that we wouldn't have to be completely destroyed but rather we would just have to go into exile and therefore that was the tzidkos that was the charity the kindness that the goodness that Hashem did for us was that he took us out early and he took us out early in order and he exiled us in that way so that we wouldn't be deserving of destruction we turn to Pechaz Bez, page 88b Amar of Achabar Yaakov Rav Achabar Yaakov says Shmami no Mehira the Mari Alma from the fact that the verse says that this is something they're going to be destroyed quickly we can deduce that the word 
quickly, in regards to Hashem, Timi Mea Bechamshin Vetartehu. It's 852 years. That's considered quickly. Masisim, we begin the Mishnah. Get Ma'usab Yisrael Kasher. Let's say you have a Jew who forces another Jew because he's supposed to, let's say someone's supposed to give a get, so, or he doesn't want to give his get, so the courts will sometimes force him. So if the people who are forcing this Jew to give his get are Jews, so then that's kosher, it's going to be fine. Let's say a non-Jew was the person who forced the Jew to bring, to give, to write his wife a divorce document. Puzzle, it's not going and when the non-Jew does it, so we, what we do is we force the Jew and we say to him, do what we're telling you, do what the Jew is telling you, the kasha, and that's going to be fine. The Gemara begins, Amr of Nachman Amr Shmuel, of Nachman says the name of Shmuel, Get HaMausub Yisrael Kedin Kasher. If a Jew forced another Jew to write a get, and it was a case where that Jew was supposed to give his wife a get, so in such a case it's, it's kosher, shalokidin. But if let's say it's a case where there was no reason why this Jew should have to give his, his wife a get, apostle. So the get is not going to be a valid get. Upoisel, however, it will have the effect that she's not going to be able to marry a Kohen because of it, since she received this get. And now in regards to a non-Jew who is forcing a Jew to write a get, Kedin, if it's a case where he's supposed to divorce his wife, Apostle, so the get is not good, but it does have the effect of causing her to not have the ability to marry a Kohen afterwards. Shalokedin, however, if it was given... It was not, he wasn't supposed to give his wife a get for any reason. So when the non-Jew was forcing him to do it, there's not even a smell of a get, meaning that she's not going to be forbidden to a Kohen. Now the Gemara asks, either way we look at it, how are we going to understand it? If a non-Jew has the ability to go and force a Jew to, to, to write a get, should even be kosher, it should be fine. And if they don't have the ability, so it shouldn't cause her to be forbidden to marry a Kohen. What's going on? Does he or does he not, a non-Jew, does he have the ability to force a Jew to do it or not? Um, Rameshashia, Rameshashia says like this, Dvar Torah, from the Torah, get kosher. A non-Jew, if he writes a get, so it's kosher. I'm sorry, if a non-Jew forces a Jew to write a get, it's kosher. Nevertheless, why do they say that it's no good? That every woman, she could go to a non-Jew, give him the right amount of cash, and she could, she could have her she could have herself freed. And, and, you know, this guy comes down with the, with, the, with the iron wrench, knocks him over the head and says, give your wife a get or I'm going to beat you up. So, and, the, and every woman will be able to get out of her, the marriage that she doesn't like her husband. Yehachi. So the says, wait. If that's the case, if the reason is, that's like we said, because we don't want her to go and hire some non-Jew, so then, if that's the case, we have a problem. Let's say he, he did force him and it was in a case where he didn't really, the Jew, the non-Jew forced the Jew to give a get. And the Jew did not have to give a get. It wasn't from the Torah that he has to give a get. Why is it that there's not even a recha get? Why is it that she's still permitted to marry a Kohen? It should be just like the case of Shalekedin by a Jew. And it should be even possible. In other words, if we're saying that from the Torah, that a non-Jew forces a Jew to give a get is considered a good get, just we, we have a gezer a, a decree from the rabbis because we don't want her to go doing things like that so if that's the case so even in a case where it was forced in a case where he wasn't supposed to give it so it should still at least make her forbidden to marry a coin so why is that not true? so the Gemara answers this statement of Masharshi was actually a mistake 
And really the truth is that when a non-Jew forces a Jew, it's not a good get at all. It's not considered a good divorce document. However, so why is it that it's going to make her forbidden in the case where he's supposed to give it? Why is it going to make her forbidden to a Kohen, despite the fact that it's possible? The time of my, the reason is, because we're going to mix up when a non-Jew forces a Jew in a case where the Jew is supposed to give it, with a case where a Jew forces the Jew to give it in a case where he's supposed to give it. However, however, a case where a non-Jew forces a Jew to give it and he's not supposed to give it, so that's not going to get mixed up with a case where the Jew forces the Jew to give it where he's supposed to give it. So therefore, that's why we don't make any kind of gazerus in that case. But in a case where the non-Jew forces him in a case where he's supposed to give it, so then we will say that true, it's not going to be a good get, it's not going to be a good divorce document, nevertheless, he's going to create issues for her to marry some kind of Kohen. The Gemara continues. Abai Ashkechelar of Yosef. Abai found of Yosef. The Yosef become asa agiti that he was sitting and forcing people to give gets. Amrlei. So Abai said to Yosef, We are regular people, meaning we are not rabbis who have the ordination that goes back to the times of Moses. That being the case, to Moshe Rabbeinu. That being the case, so we don't have the ability to do this type of thing. So how are you doing it? Vitani, we have a brayso. We have a brayso that says explicitly that we can't do that. How your Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Tarfon would say, Anytime you find the course of an Anjou, even if they follow Jewish law and they make the psak, they say the halacha, the final uh, when they bring down the gavel, it's going to be exactly like the Jew. Nevertheless, you're not allowed to go to the non-Jewish court. These are the laws that you should place before them, in front of the Jewish court, not in front of a non-Jewish court. Another thing that Rabbi Tarfan said, in front of them, meaning in front of these rabbis with an ordination that goes back to the time of Moshe, but not in front of regular people who do not have that ordination. And so basically what Abayi was saying was that we who live in Babel, we don't have the ordination. The ordination only applied in the land of Israel. So we shouldn't be able to do that. So Rav Yosef answered, We are actually acting as their messengers, and therefore we do have the ability even though we don't have the ordination. Being that, it's similar to cases where people are admitting and they're lending, meaning all monetary matters. So the people in Babel, the rabbis in Babel, took on as messengers from the rabbis in Eretz Yisrael who did indeed have the ordination. The Gemara says, if that's so, so we should also be able to act as their messengers in regards to any cases where someone stole or someone caused damage. Why is it that we don't do that? So the Gemara answers, or Yosef answers, When do we do their, when do we act as their messengers? Only on things that are common. But things that are uncommon, like stealing and causing damage, so that we cannot act as their messengers. Masisim will begin the Mishnah. Let's say a rumor went out that a certain woman has just gotten married. She was a woman who was not married previously and now she's gotten married. So we accept the rumor. The rumor stays as it is. Let's say the rumor goes out that she got divorced. So we believe the rumor and she's considered divorced. As long as there isn't anything that comes along with that rumor that contradicts that statement. What does that mean? What is this? What's coming along with the rumor? Someone divorced his wife on a condition. So since we don't know that the condition was fulfilled, therefore the rumor is invalid. Or the case that would be in regards to a kedushin, in regards to a marriage, is where they said the the rumor is that she got married, but the, it was not clear whether or not the thing that she, he was marrying her with was closer to him or closer to her. So it's not clear. It's a doubt whether or not they're actually considered married. Therefore, in that case, so since coming along with the rumor, there's something which is going to contradict the rumor. Therefore, uh, we don't believe this rumor. The rumor is not a valid rumor.